I don't I don't know. I, I don't know how to words. Radio Drome. It's another Radio Drome. It's a little bit late. I've had some personal issues that prevented us from having an episode last week, but we are back, and we are going to be back. I will not let this keep me down. And Cecil T is with me this week. I'm also back. And your front, too. And front, and left, and right. And up, and down, and inside out. Peter will not be joining us this week. He had he had a personal issue he had to deal with. Not something bad, but he had someplace else he needed to be. Peter should be back next week. Before we get into this week's topic, which will be a running topic, sort of, we need to talk about AdamandEve.com. You guys need to go to AdamandEve.com and use the promo code DROME, in which you'll get 10 free gifts on top of whatever you order. You'll get a free mystery gift, a gift for him, a gift for her, free U.S. shipping, and six free DVDs on top of whatever you order from Adam and Eve. So use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Considering the, the personal issues I was talking about, I really could use the revenue. So any help you can you can give would be great. Now, we're going to start a new series within Radio Drome here. We're going to look at film years. The good, the bad, the hits, the misses. I decided not because, oh, it's my show, but because I'm older than Cecil or Peter, we're going to start with my lifetime, since mine is longer than theirs, and we'll start in my birth year, 1975. We'll periodically be looking through every single year of film up until we get current. So let's look at 1975. Cecil, when you think of 1975 in film, what's your first thought? Jaws. That's everybody's first thought. <laughs> Money Python and the quest, uh, and the Holy Grail. Well, you, you don't think of something like A Boy and His Dog or Mitchell or Shivers or anything like that? You just immediately go to the big budgets? Well, to be fair, Money Python and the Quest for the Holy Grail wasn't exactly big budget. And uh, Jaws is just, it's, it's such a quintessential, amazing movie that pretty much changed the way that uh, films were being perceived at the time. So Jaws is kind of a big deal. Not saying that the other movies don't hold weight, not that I don't like them, not that I haven't seen them a bazillion times. It's just that when you when you asked what's the first thing I thought of, that's the first things that I think of. And that's fair. You mentioned something that is very instrumental. 1975 was a linchpin in changing film. It really, really was. Prior to this, you had the beginning of the new Hollywood movement that, you know, fair enough. Jaws is arguably the first blockbuster. Really, after Jaws, everything changed. We discussed this in our Jaws retrospective, but everything changed after Jaws. Whether it intended to or not, Jaws was was a linchpin in turning film around. Unfortunately, it was arguably the beginning of the death of new Hollywood because the studios wanted more control. Do you think that film did change after this, or is that just something that we see in retrospect? Or do you think at the time you could see just all the other films from 1975, could you see the influence of Hollywood changing, or is that just something we notice in retrospect? 
I don't think that it was immediately um, noticeable, but I'm sure that people were looking at it and were seeing the change uh, shortly after it happened. Maybe I'd say from 75 into 76 and beyond, they were noticing the changes that were made. Because, I mean, something like that doesn't change overnight. I mean, for example, we just had Deadpool and it was the highest grossing R-rated film, I think, in ever. Uh, or, or, I'm sorry, opening for an R-rated film. And so you have a lot of um, other movies that are going to come out that are really going to start looking at whether or not they should go R-rated or not. It's it's not going to be so much of a scary thing anymore. And then eventually, I think we're going to start seeing maybe more of an influx of R-rated films, but that's something that's not going to happen as much. Back then, with Jaws being such a hit, and we didn't have the NBA internet PG. back and being P, oh God, and being PG-13, or being PG, but we didn't have the internet back then, so people wouldn't really notice things that were changing. Now we see this, we see change as it's happening a little bit more. Back then, change was happening, but it wasn't quite as uh, known to everyone at the time. I agree, I agree with that, because Jaws really is the film we have to focus on here for changing everything. This was, the way, the way Roger Corman put it, was the big budget, the big studios finally figured out his formula. Problem is, they could do it bigger, better, and faster than he could. And so, really what Jaws did was it made what would have traditionally been drive-in fare or low-budget fare or indie fare now the norm, like you'd later have with Star Wars and Alien and whatnot. Those really B-movies on A-budgets, when you think about it. And Jaws was the beginning of that, and so 1975 was, was the year that did that. But let's look at some of the other key films that came out that, that year. I brought up earlier, like A Boy and His Dog. Wasn't a great hit. But that, inf I mean, that movie influenced everything in the post-apocalyptic genre. You can't discount a boy and his dog for everything it did. No, a uh, boy and his dog was great. Um, it, it's definitely a movie that I don't know how well it did at the time, but I think it, uh, it's grown its audience over the years. In all honesty, and I know how snobbish this is going to sound, I actually think the audience wasn't ready for something like a boy and his dog in '75. I think that's a film that was ahead of its time because that. Even when you watch that movie today, doesn't it feel more like an 80s movie than a 70s movie? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of things that just uh, they come out and you're blown away. You're like, holy crap, this is so far ahead of its time. And then you get a lot of people that just hate it They they because they can't quite grasp it. And then you have other people that uh, appreciate it. And then eventually it gets to where it is it's time, so to speak. And then it's like, oh, okay. And then it gets recognized and revered. And uh, yeah, every I mean, look at Max Headroom. You know, Max Headroom at the time, uh, all they were trying to do was turn it into a uh, advertisement for Coke. And they weren't realizing this amazing thing that they had. And eventually it kind of became more than that. But it took, uh, you know, being canceled and a few years before it really caught on. Okay, so Jaws is changing things and beginning something new. But then you have... Even though it's a, it's a Japanese import, you have the end of something old. The final original Godzilla movie came out in 1975. Terror of Mechagodzilla was the last of the original Godzilla films all the way up until 1985. When Terror of Mechagodzilla came out, it was kind of the end of an era. Also coming out in 1975 are two key MST3K titles. Oddly enough, films that wouldn't become famous until they were parodied in the 80s and 90s, you've got both Giant Spider Invasion and Mitchell coming out this year. 
I think that is kind of interesting on its own, that both of these movies were kind of glossed over and nobody noticed them in 75, and then now they're considered cult classics because of what happened in the 1990s. Packers won the Super Bowl! Woo, Packers! (laughs) They came from another planet to destroy the Earth. Giant spiders, 30 feet tall, clawing, crushing, killing everything in their paths. Never before was anything like them seen on Earth. The government and the military were in shock. Could anyone stop them? Could anyone stop the giant spider invasion? Movies like that and Manos and uh, Princess Space came around because of Mystery Science Theater. Uh, the majority of people, uh, even people in our circles, wouldn't have heard of something, uh, uh, well, in not quite as much as, uh, you know, uh, the giant spider invasion and Mitchell, especially Mitchell. I mean, unless you're a big Joe Don Baker fan. No, but I, I, uh, You don't even have to be a Joe Don Baker fan. I saw both of those movies. Again, I'm a little older than you. I saw both of those movies before they were on Mystery Science Theater. Not that I'm some hipster that, oh, I was into all these This was like late night UHF television fair. I remember seeing both of those at like three in the morning on a Thursday on some local channel. You kind of have this thing where they were out there, but they were definitely not cult classics until Mystery Science Theater got their their fingers on them. You know, hipster me, I had seen both of them prior to that. I saw Space Mutiny before it was on Mystery Science Theater. How many people can say that? Wow. I think that was on HBO. uh, I know I saw a couple. I think Squirm was one of them that I, I saw because then I was like, oh, man, they cut out a lot of the movie. I'm like, Squirm isn't yeah, really that pissed at the Mystery Science Theater version. Half the movie's gone. Well, the they had uh, there were problems with that. Like that was when uh, I don't remember if it was sci fi or Comedy Central, but I know both uh, kind of went down the same path. Where they started getting their budgets cut and um, Squirm was a sci-fi season. Squirm was a sci-fi season. Okay, they started having their budgets cut, and then uh, the cost of um, movies that they were able to license, like the prices, were skyrocketing. Uh, there was one uh, I don't remember off the top of my head, but they said that they wanted to license the movie for Mystery Science Theater. They wanted three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. The movie cost fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> it's like they wanted That's a, the way, you know we'll do, a, we'll do a whole other episode on mystery science theater and its influence and the licensing nonsense because i've got a whole tirade on that we'll save that let's talk about 1975 okay but that's just the kind of the way that was so that wasn't necessarily the fault of them or squirm i think it was that at the time they were just struggling to get what they could and then squirm was one that they could and then they did end up trimming it a little bit more for television which is super ironic because the first time i ever saw squirm was on a local channel, and I still have that version on tape. And it's got more footage than the Mystery Science Theater version does because they had to cut more out of it so they could make room for the host segments, which right. I think is kind of disingenuous. Like in Mitchell, they make fun of the fact that John Saxon, his plotline just peters out, and yet they were the ones who cut the, those scenes. So they're making fun of their own butchering of the movie. I find that somewhat disingenuous. Eh, but it's it's all done with tongue firmly in cheek like they never really uh, are outright they they never attack any that's the thing that i don't think some people understand with mystery science theater is that they're not going after movies that just 
completely suck. Like they are going after movies that have some sort of redemption about them, whether or not it's fun, uh, it's just entertaining, it's silly. Like it has to have some aspect of enjoyment to it. They're not just like going to start showing uh, Medea movies or something and, and just, uh, you know, well, maybe Rift Tracks would, but but that's a whole uh, whole other animal. That's not technically but, Mystery Science Theater, right? Well, let's look at let's look at some of the key films of 1975. We've got. I haven't seen this movie since the 80s. I considered it one of the most boring films I'd ever sat through until I saw The English Patient. You have Stanley Kubrick's, quote, classic, Barry Lyndon, which to me, like I said, is one of the most boring films I've ever sat through in my entire life. No interest, really. Only in 1975 could you have had a theatrically released Bugs Bunny movie hosted by Orson Welles in Bugs Bunny Superstar. Wow. When the hell else would you have a theatrically released Bugs Bunny film starring Orson Welles. That's so 1975, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, now you would probably uh, have, like, Space Jam 2 with uh, the guy who does uh, the brain doing his Orson Welles. It's weird. This is one of the things about the 70s that people don't realize. A lot of things that are considered indie films, like you, you would look at, at an old set 1970s movie and you go, that was, there's no way a studio put that out. And then you see Paramount's logo on the front and you find out it had a $4 million budget or something. <laughs> something like The Devil's Reign. Could you ever have expected that a studio put out The Devil's Reign? No, this, The Devil's Reign. It's a great movie, too. Oh, it's great, but it really feels like an independent film because of just the way that it's done. It's done very... It's, it's kind of quick and dirty looking, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even uh, there was a director's commentary for it, and even the director said... There were things that uh, he would have, should have done differently, but uh, at the time, uh, it just seemed like to work, and and uh, it was it was funny hearing all that stuff. Like the he's like the melting scene at the end. He's like, oh my god, it just goes on forever, and it it does, but it, it it's so weird. <laughs> so cool that it kind of makes the the movie work that much better but yeah it does feel like a very indie film at the very least like a lower budget studio side you know how like uh, the different studios they own different they have different branches within them right i i think that uh you know it'd feel more like a, like one of those did it but no it was a it was a fairly large budget film that uh god it doesn't doesn't feel like it well, and then sticking with the devil theme, you also have studio-made Race with the Devil with Warren Oates and Peter Fonda coming out the same year. We saw somebody murdered! Some sort of ritual across the river. A girl got stabbed. 20th Century Fox presents Race with the Devil, starring Peter Fonda and Warren Oates. There was nowhere they could hide. You've seen us. There was nothing they could do but run and fight. And race with the devil. Race with the devil. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. The devil in the desert was a big thing. Was that like a subgenre that I missed out on? I don't know. Maybe uh, somebody had the idea that, uh, hey, you know, this is going to be popular. And then everybody jumped all over it. The French Connection 2, which is arguably a very inferior movie to The French Connection. At this point in 1975... With the exception of Dirty Harry movies and, you know, the, the Quatermass movies being British imports, sequels were not really that big of a thing. I mean, we've got a couple here we'll talk about later, but sequels were still relatively rare. So the, the fact that they made a sequel to The French Connection is somewhat odd, isn't it? 
Well, the the French Connection 2 is just kind of an odd sequel across the board. It's definitely not as good as the original. No. It's a good film. It's just not as good. No. Well, you had a long, like, hard road to follow with the first one. I mean, the first one was some very early guerrilla filmmaking. I mean, all those car chases were filmed without a permit, and they did a lot of stuff that they would not be able to get away with today, or if they did, they would get into a lot more trouble. Hell, most people don't realize that there was there was a TV pilot of the French Connection in 1986. We'll, we'll do a whole episode on the four French Connection movies. You heard me right, four of them. Most people don't remember that there's anything past the first one. Yeah, I'm one of those people. <laughs> well, I, I know the second one, but I haven't seen the second one in a very long time. Well, because then there's also the TV pilot where Ed O'Neill takes over as Popeye Doyle, and then Roy Scheider is playing the same character in the 7-Ups that he played in the French Connection movies. So it's a, the 7-Ups is a sidequel. You have the, the exploitation genre, subgenre, was running wild at this point. You had lots of Corman exploitations and that. But you have one of the ones that that very few people have seen, yet they have seen. If I described the plot to you about down south, two cousins, one of which has a, is apt with a, a crossbow and a bow and arrow. They drive a special car with a Confederate flag on the roof. Waylon Jennings narrates, and it's about a corrupt sheriff and a corrupt mayor trying to stop these moonshiners along with their, their bearded uncle and their sexy cousin. What would you say I was describing? Well, I know it's not the Dukes of Hazard. Um, it is, though, technically. But it's, well, I'm saying it's what inspired the Dukes of Hazard. Yeah, the 1975 movie Moonrunner, starring James Mitchum, is by the same guy who created the Dukes of Hazard. This is a hard R exploitation flick full of nudity and swearing and violence. When it went over okay in 75, he basically changed the names and sold it to CBS for the Dukes of Hazard a few years later and made almost no changes to the plot other than the graphicness. I find that to be brilliant. So anyone who's ever seen the Dukes of Hazard, you've technically seen Moonrunners even if you've never seen Moonrunners. It, it is. Uh, you got to wonder how many uh, things have come along that they've changed uh, ever so slightly, uh, things that have come on under the radar. You know, maybe it was a movie that wasn't a hit, or uh, or they've kept the name. Um, and then, I mean, look at things like, you, know, you remember the Starman series, and then Buffy the Vampire Slayer, like they uh, they changed just enough to be able to get on television. But I wonder how many ones have come along where they did something like that, where they changed the name. And, uh, you well, know, that's took, about it. Took about the uh, t- really. I, I think that there's probably at least one more, you know, that uh, they were able to, to change it and uh, get it on television. We talked about exploitation. Blaxploitation is still running wild at this point. And you have two. One of these I'm not going to call a black exploitation film. You have two key black exploitation films and one film that's I think misidentified as a black exploitation film, all coming out in 1975. You've got Coonskin by Ralph Bakshi, a vastly misunderstood film and an amazing movie. And then you also have Cleopatra Jones and the Casino of Gold, which is kind of a Enter the Dragon ripoff at the same time as being a black exploitation film. It's pretty cool. And then you have the one that's called black exploitation, but I really don't think is, and that's Mandingo. So you've got the black exploitation genre still running pretty strong in '75 too, don't you? Oh yeah. You know there was something maybe about two weeks ago or so where I was getting annoyed because they were talking about um, you know racist movies that still exist, and uh, they were talking about Coonskin, and it was like no dummies like. <laughs> Like, this is not 
something that is, is should be outright dismissed as racist. And also, even if it is like something like Birth of a Nation, okay, yeah, that was about the Klan, but you ha do have to look at the technical merits of it. I'm sorry, I, I'm not... Uh, a, Griffith uh, pioneered filmmaking techniques in that incredibly racist film. Exactly. Like, it. I'm not saying that what they did was right. I'm not saying that what they were talking about was right. But you cannot dismiss that movie as because of the fact of what its contents was. It's like it was a revolutionary film. And uh, by just waving your hands at it, you're doing a great disservice to filmmaking in general. It's like we learn from, unfortunately, sometimes awful things. Well, in Coonskin, it not only let's leave the plot and whatnot out of it right now. Talk about a revolutionary film. The way he used live action backgrounds and animated characters on top and the way the live action and the animation was blended together. By today's standards, it might seem somewhat clunky. In 1975, that was fucking revolutionary. Yeah, people lost their shit when Roger Rabbit did that years later, and they had a whole lot more uh, technology and studio money behind them. Yeah, so I mean, Coonskin, Coonskin is a, is, a, is a racist movie. Back, she admits that, but it's supposed to be because it's calling attention to the racism of the '70s, and you can't do that without using racist language. So yeah, Coonskin is a racist movie. And then you've got the more traditional black exploitation. Do you remember that sub sub genre of black exploitation, the kung fu black exploitation movies? Oh, well, like Black Belt Jones and uh, that yeah, kind of the, stuff. Yeah, the slew of those. And Cleopatra Jones and the Casino of Gold is one of those. It's a black exploitation movie, but it's also such an Enter the Dragon hit as well. Weird blending of a t of black exploitation and Bruce exploitation at the same time. It's bizarre. Well, and then Mandingo. Yeah, Mandingo's a pretty racist movie based on a pretty racist book, but it's also, it was a key turning point in racial movies, too, because it treated its subject matter almost too seriously. And was, of course, panned by critics. Yeah, I, I've never seen it, so I, I can't really say. I only know uh, I only know it from uh, like a few off-color jokes. And then we also, the exploitation genre was running full bore in 1975 as well. You have got amazing exploitation films such as Shivers, a.k.a. They Came From Within, from Cronenberg, Shampoo by Hal Ashby. You've got Deep Red from Argento arguably one of the most divisive films of all time. Sallow, 120 Days of Sodom, comes out in 1975. The exploitation subgenre was still running full rampant. I mean, hell, you've even got Super Vixens by Russ Meyer and Switchblade Sisters, a.k.a. The Jezebels by Jack freaking Hill, coming out all in the same year. 75 was a good exploitation year, wasn't it? The 70s in general was good for exploitation. The uh, I actually didn't see uh, Switchblade Sisters until... Um, the 90s i think uh when tarantino uh was going through uh yes yeah, yeah the 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 rolling thunder pictures vhs release in the late 90s i've got that same one he was uh re-releasing all of these movies that kind of had gotten lost and he was talking about the movies that uh, have influenced him and he wanted to make sure that you know they still were able to be seen because uh, i don't even think you know they were hard to come by so he did that he did that with uh with street uh yeah, the the Sonny Chiba's uh, Street Fighter. I did that with uh, with Switchblade Sisters and a bunch of other movies. And there were movies that 
I had never even heard it. Well, I had heard of Street Fighter because I, I liked Sonny Chiba, but um, I had never uh, like heard of a lot of the other ones. And it was cool for him to do that. I realized there was a, a monetary thing as well. It was getting you know him some more money, but it was also bringing a lot of these movies back that had been lost. It's kind of in a way like what uh, some places like Shout Factory and whatnot are doing. They're taking all of these lost movies and cleaning them up and re-releasing them. The weird thing about Switchblade Sisters is I had thought I'd never seen the movie until I got that same VHS release that you're talking about. Because when I saw it, it was called The Jezebels. So that was one of those ones where I'm like, oh, Switchblade Sisters. Okay, I've never seen this. And I pop it in and I'm like, hey, <laughs> I've seen this. So th- th- that one did get me with a title switch. But then, well, like, Switchblade Sisters was was that the original title or was no, that the... The, no? The Switchblade Sisters was the retitle. Jezebels was the original title. Even the trailer is the Jezebels. Oh, okay. So that, that that's why that one got me because I'd never heard of a movie at that point called Switchblade Sisters. But then you also have Russ Meyer was still making films, Super Vixens, which is one of his most famous films. It's, you you know you name you go up to anybody who knows who Russ Meyer is and you say name five Russ Meyer films. Super Vixens is going to be one of those. It's kind of funny that even in 75, he was still cranking these things out. Because his heyday, let's face it, was the late 60s. So to have him still cranking these things out in 75, kind of interesting. Mondo Topless is one of the greatest things ever. (laughs) Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, amazing title. Oh, yeah. Although uh, I had learned about the movie Faster Pussycat Kill Kill from the really not good uh, glam rock band that uh, <laughs> yes. had the same name. Because I, I was like, them. this name this is a weird ass name for a band. And I'm like, based on a movie? A Russ Meyer movie. A Russ Meyer movie. Yeah. But then, you know, you also had the studio still putting out their big budget. In this case, I'm going to say crap by like, you know, Tommy, by that hack Ken Russell. You have Rollerball coming out. You know, you've got. Uh, oh, wait, wait, wait. You're saying Rollerball is bad. I, I've never liked the original. I, I, well, oh. I hated the remake. Don't, don't get me wrong. I was just going to say, I'm like, you no, like no, the no. remake? No, 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 no. But I, I just Rollerball never did anything for me. You know? Oh, Rollerball's fantastic. I just didn't like the original. But, you know, wow. you also had big budget studio stuff coming out, like The Ultimate Warrior with Yul Brenner, which I think is a better idea than it is a film. You've got Walking Tall Part 2 coming out. You've you've got stuff like, uh, like Barry Lyndon coming out. And then you've got arguably, I mean, it's not a huge budget movie, but it's a studio film. You got One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, swept the 1975 Oscars. And, I mean, it's a great movie, don't get me wrong, but it's a studio film through and through, really, it is. I mean, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest won Best Film, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Best Adapted Screenplay at the 1976 Oscars. That's a lot of critical acclaim to throw on on one movie from 75, isn't it? Oh, it's an amazing movie, though. It is, but I'm just saying, it's a studio film that feels like a studio film to me. Mm, I don't know. I I think it it feels... it does feel a little bit like studio film, but that's simply because of like the actors and whatnot that are in it, that now we all know them as uh, fairly well uh, to known larger guys, where back then they still weren't named. Well, I mean, they were they were getting to be names, but they weren't the powerhouses that they are now. The birth in 1975 of what's arguably the biggest cult film of all time. The Rocky Horror Picture Show came out in 75. You have to look at Rocky Horror Picture Show came out this year. I love the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I'm actually really annoyed that they're remaking it. it, it Wait, you, what? Oh, you didn't know that? They've been trying to remake it for years. I, I've they, been hearing that. I, if there's something definite, that I hadn't heard. 
Yeah, uh, maybe I heard about a week ago uh, that it was pretty much on because, you know, now with uh, Glee and uh, Pitch Perfect and all that kind of nonsense, how that is doing so well that they figure that they can make uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show uh, appeal to the Glee crowd. And I'm pretty sure it sounds like another gem in the holograms all over. Oh, absolutely. That is exactly what it's going to be. No one, it's not going to appeal to fans of the original and it's not going to draw in any new fans. So it's it's going to be just a disaster. They're going to get a bunch of, you know, pretty people to kind of uh, sing these songs. They'll probably do like jazzed up versions of them like they do with Glee. And it's going to be an absolute disaster. That is a movie that you're not going to be able to recapture that kind of magic. No, especially because Rocky Horror Picture Show was kind of a mistake, you know, kind of an accident. I mean, it had been a stage play prior to that. And, you know, they had to change things. And, you know, Richard O'Brien, at the time, he wasn't happy with how the picture turned out because of all the changes that they made. Obviously, he's, you know, come to terms with all that. But here's my thing with Rocky Horror Picture Show. I don't like the movie. I love the production design. I love the way it's directed. And I love the music. Does that make any sense that I still don't like the movie as a movie, though? No, it makes sense. It, it is, um, I mean, it's definitely not for everybody. It took me it took me a couple of viewings before I really got it, because yeah, I saw it I saw it a little too young. And I remember watching it being like, uh, I don't really understand what's going on. Did they just eat meatloaf? <laughs> and, why, and why is Tim Curry, well, I didn't know who Tim Curry was at the time, but I'm like, why is this guy wearing women's clothing? I'm scared. And all the gay stuff. And There's so much gay. Now it's hilarious. Like, I, I love it. And uh, the songs are great. And uh, I just, uh, I, I think it's fantastic. You brought up the uh, Street Fighter Sonny Chiba movies. Now, the Sonny Chiba Street Fighter series, first of all, how many films do you think are in that franchise? Five? I know Seven. That- so okay, well it's it's Street Fighter. Uh, was it Return of Street Fighter? Uh, Street Street Fighter, Return of the Street Fighter, Street Fighter's Last Revenge, Sister then, Street Fighter. Then there was Sister Street Fighter, the Return of Sister Street Fighter, and then there was there was uh, two more Street Fighter movies after that. That were sister, the two more Sister Street Fighter movies after that. So but there was only three with Sonny Chiba. Oh, well, no, Sonny, no, four technically, because he was in the first Sister Street Fighter. Right. He, he, he was in that one. So right. he, Sonny Chiba, is in four of them, but only three of his own. Right. If that makes any sense, or if that's just confusing things, I'm not sure. No, no, that makes sense. That's fine. Uh, I just, I haven't seen Sister Street Fighter in a very long time. Yeah, he, he's actually in that one, but he's not in the sequels to that one. But mm. we had a, okay, remember Street Fighter came out in 1974. We're to the sixth movie by the time we're up to 1975. <laughs> Do you see what I mean about how they were cranking these some bitches out? They probably filmed, just filmed them all back to back, I guess. Probably, because it's like, holy crap. I had forgotten that there was this that tiny little you know time frame for all these films. Because I knew about, I actually didn't know about the final Sister Street Fighter movie. That one actually kind of surprised me, because that's the only one I haven't seen. But I was surprised all these came out in like a year and a half. That, that really is. does say something. Yeah, uh, I can't possibly think of anything uh, where there's been. I mean, I know uh, some movies they've been made over the course of two years, but then they've released them, you know, every you know few you know every year, every other year, or whatever. But uh, I, I can't think of anyone where there's been seven films in a year and a half. It's insane. These were Shaw Brothers films, weren't they? They were kind of a factory at this point. Oh God, yeah. You know, is pumping pumping out product. 
Well, and then you have another cult classic that came out this year, which I despise this movie. And I think the remake was actually worse, but Stepford Wives. Oh, God. Came out in 75. I didn't like the original, and I despised the remake. Oh, I like the original, but the remake, they tried to make like. They, they tried, they tried to, to make it, it funny. Well, they tried to make it funny, and they tried to make it a feminist movie. And it's like, look, I'm, I'm all for you trying to, you know, alter subject matter or whatnot. But the movie, it was really a, kind of a sign of the times. It was like they were – it was these guys that they were completely trying to manipulate their wives, and they were uh, basically turning them into th- these completely controlled women. Literal robots. Yeah, literal robots. And then the the remake, uh, they tried to spin it on its head. And, oh, it was just a big pile of shit. Like, I remember the first time I saw the trailer, I'm like, I know this is going to be shit. And it, it ended up being worse than I thought it was going to be. You had another Roger Corman classic come out this year, Death Race 2000. Paul Bartel. Oh. Paul Bartel's interesting post-apocalyptic kind of movie. I mean, who remembers that Sylvester Stallone? Let's discount Italian Stallion because that hadn't actually come out at that point. But this was Sylvester Stallone's arguable screen debut in a Roger Corman film. Mm-hmm. Didn't Corman hate it? Corman was not the biggest fan. He actually no, – no, remember, Corman was always about politics is what makes people stay away from movies. When he made The Intruder in 1962 with William Shatner, that was a very political movie. It's also a fantastic film. If you've never seen The Intruder – First of all, William Shatner as a race-baiting Klansman. If that doesn't get you wanting to see The Intruder, I don't know what will. Corman said he wanted to take a political stand because he was, he was always been a very political man. He's just not in his movies. And he said up to that point, that was the only film he'd ever made that lost money. So he didn't want politics or subtext or anything like that in his films. Death Race 2000 is all about subtext, isn't it? Oh, hell yeah. So he would, he was not happy about all of the political subtext. And I mean, he was for satire, but the satire was kind of on the nose to 1975 politics, wasn't it? Yeah, it was it uh, it, it really stood out. But it, it I don't know. But it, it just it worked because it was so perfect. You know, they just did such a great job with it. And where else are you going to see Sylvester Stallone throw spaghetti on women? <laughs> I'm serious. That happens in the film if you haven't seen it, people. Oh, it's great. And I mean, and that was where the whole, you know, running over pedestrians for points came from. You know, when he when he's I'll tra- show you full points. <laughs> they Toxic go, Avenger. Yeah, they're going through the uh, the hospital and they're like, oh, they're crossing. And just mows the people over. And, oh, it's just hilarious. It's yeah. so inappropriate. Even though the slasher genre, as we know it, didn't exist at this point. I mean, you had Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1974, but, you know, and whatnot. But the slasher genre, as we know it, wouldn't begin until 1979 with Halloween. It's weird when you've got a movie like Slash Dreams, originally released as Sunburst, being Robert Englund's film debut, which is a boring piece of crap but is arguably one of the earliest slasher films. It's just not seen as such. That came out in 1975. Have you ever seen Slash Dreams, a.k.a. Sunburst? I believe that I have. It's just been a very long time. Or you purged it from your memory because it's a piece of it's a boring piece of crap. That is very possible as well. You had The Return of the Sister Street Fighter. You also had yet another Blake Edwards Pink Panther movie. 
I don't remember Return of the Pink Panther specifically. I've seen all of the Peter Sellers Pink Panther movie. The thing is, I saw them all as a kid. I can't tell you which one was which. I remember the plots and I've seen them all, but I can't go, oh, that was from Return. Oh, that was from the original and whatnot. I might have liked Return of the Pink Panther. I don't remember because I've seen all the Pink Panther movies. I just don't remember specifically which one Return is. Yeah, I'm pretty much the same way. Uh, I think, God, I remember um, when we used to, when I was young and uh, my family, we'd go visit my grandmother and uh, I'd go in the other room and turn the TV on. And for some reason, uh, they used to run the Pink Panther like all the time. So I had seen a lot of the Pink Panther movies on television when I was younger. But like you, I don't know which one is, is which. And uh, I think the only reason I was watching it was because I thought it was the, uh, from the cartoon from the cartoon. I'm like, oh, the Pink Panther. And then I'm like, I don't understand. Where's the cartoon going to start? I actually think, you know, looking at them, I'm you know, again going off memory here, but looking at them from an adult perspective, I remember them being pretty funny movies, though. I had the same disappointment that it wasn't, you know, the cartoon. But at the same time, I kind of went. These are actually pretty good films, though. Oh, I, I think they're they're funny. I mean, God, and then uh, they completely shitting on Peter Sellers' grave when they did the uh, the Steve Martin remake. I never saw any of those. <laughs> I, I I was not even gonna yeah I was not even gonna attempt the the Steve Martin ones. And I've heard and, but, that my yeah. my skepticism was justified. Yeah, you're uh, you're on the money with that one. Uh, I didn't see the second one, uh, and I'm I'm pretty sure that. Uh, it's going to be shit. Well, speaking of going to be shit and did turn out to be shit, 1975 also had two movies that were adapted from famous source material and missed the mark so hard. Even fans of the source material are like, yeah, that doesn't exist to me. You've got the Happy Hooker, the, the Lynn, Lynn Redgrave Happy Hooker, and Doc Savage Man of Bronze. Both of those are god-awful movies that piss all over their source material and yet somehow got made uh i think i saw the the second happy hooker the happy hooker goes to hollywood and well there's also a happy hooker goes to washington the happy hooker series went on way longer than it should have because no one was ever happy with them no nobody was ever happy with these movies because they weren't good i've read the happy hooker book and i i, I haven't seen the movies since the 80s on video but I remember going, there's nothing from the book in this movie. What the hell was that? I remember they were talking about the uh, the Happy Hooker sequels in the uh, canon documentary. And, uh, basically... Yeah, because I think canon did make those. Or they might not have made them. They at least released them. I don't think that they made the, I don't think they made the first one. I think they made the sequels. Well, but canon I... didn't exist when the first one came out, so I know they didn't make that one. Exactly. Yeah, right, right, right. So, but yeah, I remember them talking about how they weren't particularly happy with how they were. They've been trying to make a Doc Savage movie, a big budget Hollywood Doc Savage movie since the 90s. I remember when in the early 90s I was reading in Starlog, Arnold Schwarzenegger had been cast and they started doing costume and makeup tests and stuff on an Arnold Schwarzenegger Doc Savage movie that somehow fell apart. A lot of people don't remember in the 70s there were like two or three Doc Savage movies. There's a reason you don't remember them. Uh, I don't think I've seen any Doc Savage movies. They're not good. They're, I mean, really, when you look at them, again, I'm going from memory here. Hell, I don't even think they ever came out on VHS. I only ever saw those on UHF television. They, they felt like like Treasure Hunter movies. They felt kind of like bad Indiana Jones ripoffs prior to Indiana Jones, which is yeah. kind of bizarre. Yeah, it kind of seems that way. But, I mean, I, I know it's a long – was it a long-running book series? 
Uh, it was a long-running series of books, and then in the 60s, there was a, a set of comic books. Uh, it, it was old pulp magazine stuff, and then they had lots of cheap paperbacks, and then there was comic books and all this. So yeah, Doc Savage is essentially a pulp character. Yeah, I, I haven't read the uh, the books or uh, seen any of the movies, so I can't really say. Well, and I brought it up earlier. We had Deep Red by Dario Argento. Now, Deep Red is a film that absolutely did not find its audience in 1975. It, that didn't find it until 80s television. Here's my thoughts on Deep Red. And I think 70s and 80s, actually, I think 80s Argento is his best period. But I don't like Deep Red because I don't think it's a very well-made film, but it's I love the idea of it. I think it's a great plot that was not handled properly. Um, I think if um, I don't know the full behind the scenes story with Deep Red, but uh, I have a feeling it probably could have used a little bit more money and uh, to kind of achieve where uh, Argento wanted. But uh, I don't know. Uh, most even bad Argento films are still better than a lot of crap that's out there. That's fair enough. You know, you, you had another, another Charles Bronson, Jill Ireland movie come out in 1975. We had Breakout. Charles Bronson is Nick Colton. His specialty, impossible escapes. His fee, $5,000 a second. His job, hit a maximum security prison and escape with an innocent man. He has 10 seconds from now. Charles Bronson, Breakout, The Impossible Escape, Breakout, Charles Bronson, Robert Duvall, Jill Ireland, John Houston, Breakout, from Columbia Pictures, rated PG, parental guidance suggested, Bronson, Breakout. Beautiful. This is going to sound insulting to the man, but let's face it, most Charles Bronson films, unless they're a Western, they're essentially the same movie, aren't they? Mm, yeah. I mean, the only time he did anything different was the Westerns, and that was really just the setting. And, and and he made, what, five different movies in the 70s and 80s with Jill Ireland? So that's why it's like yet another repeat. You've even got almost the same cast as a regular Charles Bronson flick. I still like him. Oh, I, li- I like him, too. I, I, I'm just saying they're all the same. I didn't say they were bad. They're just all the same <laughs> movie. <laughs> I actually got really irritated with when Alex Winters was completely shitting on... Uh, Death Wish um, 3. Death, Death Wish 3, where it was just like that was infuriating to me. Like, it's like, OK, f- that's kind of where you got your start. And like, it it seemed disingenuous. It seemed like he was attacking it for the sake of attacking it. Well, you also got really... to remember that Electric Boogaloo, quote, documentary was a straight up hit piece. It was there. Oh, to, yeah. It was there to make Canon look bad. And that's been confirmed by numerous participants, such as Ted Newsome, Albert Pune, and a couple of others, that every single good thing they said about Canon was left on the cutting room floor. And Ted Newsome said he was being prompted to say bad things about them with their with the questions that they were asking him. They wanted him to talk shit about Canon. And every time he said something nice, he, he said, and I quote, they were visually irritated that I didn't bash Canon. That documentary is a hit piece on Canon. So I wouldn't be surprised if Alex Winters was not prompted to shit all over Death Wish 3. I could see that probably uh, would, because it did feel just so out of left field. Like, like every time he popped up, he was saying something negative. 
And it was like, really? Like, not not even a little bit possible? Like, it wasn't just like, oh, this kind of stunk, but we... No, it was like, oh, my God! Like, he was, like, really going at it. And, uh, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. That kind of sucks. Well, and then it was also confirmed that when, when Lorraine Landon burned her copy of Ameri- her VHS of America 3000, that that was given to her, and t- they handed her the lighter and whatnot and said, do this, it'll be really fun. I so hated th- th- to me, Electric Boogaloo is a hit piece. That's not a documentary. Hurts me because the same people made Not Quite Hollywood, and that I thought was a tremendously balanced documentary. Yeah, the exploitation one was terrific, and part that you mentioned with the burning of America 3000 it pissed me off so because it that was another thing where it was like all right it felt staged it felt so staged and I had um after I did my video on America 3000 I had talked to uh, some people that were involved uh, they had contacted me and I found out you know it wasn't uh the most pleasant shooting schedule but they had like good memories of it and stuff and that's kind of the thing it's like look man you had an experience i mean unless like it it ruined your life then move on don't you know burn a copy of the movie it's so petty let's get back to 1975 we go off on tangents get used to it we do there are two films again these were uhf staples so i saw both of these on uhf television i don't know if even to this day, if I've ever seen them uncut or not. But do you remember the two UK imports we got from 1975? The Land That Time Forgot with Doug McClure and Legend of the Werewolf with Peter Cushing? No. I remember seeing both of those. Those were also UHF staples. And I remember both of those being tremendously fun. They both came out in 1975. 1975 was arguably a good year. And I left out a whole lot of key films that came out. I'm just looking at the ones that I thought were interesting to talk about, like Rooster Cogburn with John Wayne and Catherine Hepburn came out that year. Eh, I didn't really like the movie, so I figured, why, why even bring that up, you know? You know, you've got Walter Matthau's The Sunshine Boys. Didn't really like it all that much. So even though... I did bash some of these movies. I tried to talk about some of the better movies that came out in 1975. Let's look at the year 1975 in film when it comes to box office. Obviously, Jaws was number one. There's no debating that. Here's the weird thing. Rocky Horror Picture Show was considered a disaster, and yet it made $112 million in 1975. Holy crap. What was the budget? The budget was only $1.4 million. And yet somehow when you hear Richard O'Brien talk about the movie, he considers it a disaster. Maybe he considers it a production disaster. That but has it was the to second be. highest grossing film of 1975 for fuck's sake. Wow, I thought it was a bomb. <laughs> $112 million. You know, and then the next one, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. With all the Oscars it got, it's not surprising that made a ton of money. One that we didn't bring up, the fourth highest grossing, Dog Day Afternoon. Arguably one of the first mainstream again this is a warner brothers film mainstream transgender picture i mean it's kind of transgender it's not it is transgender and it's not does does that make sense i mean you know what the plot twist is right mm-hmm. so did you see how it is kind of tra- a transgender movie mm-hmm. even though it's really a bank robbery movie uh, yeah i guess he's robbing a bank to buy money so his boyfriend can get a sex change that's kind of transgressive no pun intended for 1975 isn't it Tran- wouldn't it is a transgressive negative? I thought transgressive was just moving, you know, transitioning. Oh. But Trans- maybe I used the word wrong. That's a possibility. I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know how to words. And you've got shampoo, the very sexual, very graphic movie. You got Return of the Pink Panther. Ugh, you got Funny Lady coming in at number seven. You. Th- this one 
I didn't bring this one up at all because Walt Disney, you know, wasn't really known for a lot of their live action hits in the 70s. The Apple Dunk Apple Dumpling Gang made $36 million that year. Holy crap. Uh-huh. So that was argue. I mean, that's in the top 10. I'll admit I have not seen this film, Aloha, Bobby and Rose. I have never even heard of that. Made 35 million bucks. And then other side of Universal's Other Side of the Mountain made 34. So that's the top 10 high, highest grossing films of 1975. That's kind of an eclectic list when you think about it, isn't it? Very. You know, it's it's like, well, that was a little weird. You have certain actors who got their start, bizarrely enough, in 1975. Like actor debuts for Kim Cattrall in Rosebud, Tim Curry in Rocky Horror, Brad Dourif starred in the 1975 movie W.W. and the Dixie Dance Kings, Lawrence Fishburne, Cornbread Earl and Me in the Black Exploitation Flick, Christopher Lloyd, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Bill Murray as a voice in Tarzoon, Shame of the Jungle, both Dennis Quaid and Bill Paxton in Crazy Mama, you got Chris Sarandon in Dog Day Afternoon, Patrick Stewart in Hennessy, John Travolta in Devil's Reign, so you even had some interesting acting debuts in 1975. Do you think it was wrong for me to, to say 1975 was as key of a year of it as it really was in film? Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. The next time we do one of these, which may or may not be next week, we'll be looking at 1976. Do you think 1976 will be as key of a year as 1975 was without looking at a list? Uh, you, yeah, I was just about to look. Don't cheat, <laughs> bastard. Yes, it will be. The one I'm waiting for is 1982. I can't wait till we get to that, because I think 1982 and 1984 are two of the biggest years in my lifetime of film ever. But we're going to go chronologically, so we'll get there when we get there. Well, I think 1977 was kind of a big deal. 1977 had a lot of keys, but Star Wars is the biggest. Well, obviously. So we'll get there when we get there. Cecil, if people want to find you being wrong about things, where would they do so? You can find me being completely right and telling Josh that he is a stupid head over at... Uh, You're Escapist... a stupid head. <laughs> You're a stupid head. Uh, over at EscapistMagazine.com, uh, GoodBadFlix.com, and all your favorite social media outlets except for Instagram. You can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, remember you can't dismiss 70s films just for being 70s. They influenced everything that you like now. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold.
Radio Drome is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.